Now, in April, in the deepest darkness of the pandemic, Captain Tom Moore, a 99-year-old war veteran, decided to raise money for the NHS. It quickly became a strange thing. He became the darling of the pandemic. He walked around his garden on his Zimmer frame for sponsorship, 10 laps of 25 meters a day. He reached 1,000, then 10,000, then 32 million. And as he walked, he was worshipped. He sang, you will never walk alone with Michael Ball, which went to number one. He wrote a book, an autobiography. Artists painted him. His portrait is now in the National Army Museum. He even got a nickname, Captain Tom. The queen, who had been, of course, under lockdown herself, emerged from the lockdown to briefly knight him. He was made a colonel. He was granted a gold blue Peter badge, a train, a bus, a puppy, two horses, and a garden were named after him. On his 100th birthday, planes of the Royal Air Force flew past his house. He received over 140,000 birthday cards and two Guinness World Records. Now a film is actually being made of his life. Uh, when we think of the honors of, for Captain Tom, they just keep on piling. What are we to make of this bizarre cult of Captain Tom? What is that about? One word, isn't it? Comfort. Comfort. The dictionary, the English dictionary, defines comfort as a condition or state of finding some relief from distress. To be comforted is to be consoled or to be encouraged. You see, in the middle of our COVID-19 gloom, we needed someone in the country to relieve our distress, to comfort us, to soothe us, to give us hope, to give us comfort. So we turned to Captain Tom, and that shouldn't surprise us, should it? All of us need comfort. All of us want comfort. You want physical comfort, don't you? This is why you go to work. You need money to ensure your house is comfortable to live in. To have a nice, comfortable sofa for Sunday afternoon. We love physical comfort, don't we? You also want emotional comfort. How do I know? Because you do everything you can to avoid people. I do the same. People and situations that make you feel anxious, make you feel stressed or depressed. You want emotional comfort. You also want relational comfort. You want that warm, fuzzy feeling of being loved, to be wanted by others, to know that you really matter. That's why people enter relationships and that's why sometimes as parents we desire to have more children. Help me, because we want to have children. The more people who love us, the better. There are the reasons, but that's one of the reasons. You also want spiritual comfort, don't you? You know deep down that you are not just a pile of DNA. You have a soul inside of you. You are a spiritual being. And you have spiritual longings. 
you are silently asking yourself, God, are you out there? When I die, will I really spend eternity with you or away from you? Everyone asks that question. We are all searching for comfort. And sadly, sadly, as the account, the bizarre account of Captain Tom shows, we are willing, as a country and as individuals, to plunge very low in our search to be comforted. I don't know about you, but there is something pathetic, isn't there? About the whole country turning to a hundred-year-old man to embody its hopes and dreams for the future. Tom Moore is not our savior. He cannot give us lasting comfort that we yearn for. He's a vulnerable hundred-year-old man who needs not us to worship him, but us to care for him. He should be resting. The truth is that deep down, you see, we know that nothing in this world can give us the comfort that truly satisfies us. The comfort that never runs out. And so it seems we have a problem, don't we? Every human being is longing for comfort. But our searching for comfort has come up short. So what should we do? Right? Where do we go for comfort? Well, according to the Bible, you see, we, we don't find comfort by searching for it. The comfort we long for has already come to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And we find this sensational truth in the passage we are looking at today in Isaiah 40, verse 1 to verse 2. You see, this prophecy of Isaiah was given 2,800 years ago in the nation of Israel, in the, land, the southern kingdom of Judah. You see, the people of God living during Isaiah had rebelled against God. So God decided to lovingly discipline them by sending them into foreign exile. And we, in the 6th century, in 587 BC, the global superpower, Babylon, invaded the capital, Jerusalem. It destroyed the city. It ransacked the temple. It killed many people. Complete genocide. The rest were carried off as slaves to Babylon. We know it was terrible times because we read about what happened in the book of Lamentation. We read about it in their time in exile in Psalm 137. Israel had lost everything. For 70 years there was terrible suffering. But here is the interesting thing as we come to these words in Isaiah. These words were given in the 8th century. These words were given a hundred years before they went into exile. God had given, you see, Israel an advanced word of comfort through Isaiah. Before they went into exile in the 6th century, he had given advanced words through Isaiah in the 8th century. And in chapter, nine, chapter 39 of Isaiah, the chapter that comes before this chapter, God has just said to Isaiah, to King Hezekiah, through Isaiah, that he's going to send the people into exile. So it's God is speaking in the 8th century. But immediately after chapter 39, God quickly adds in chapter 40, 
that the exiles will return. He will bless them. He will restore them in the land. And so we read those words, verse, verse 1 to verse 2 in Isaiah 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that our warfare is ended, that our iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all our sins. God is promising comfort for the exiles. And the amazing thing in these words is that God is not just promising to bring them back, that their warfare will end, that they will return. God is promising them something far better, lasting comfort, as we see. Pardon from sin, a restored relationship with God. And so this passage answers that important question we are asking at the beginning. How can I have comfort that I can truly depend on? How can I have comfort that never runs out? And the answer Isaiah gives us here is that God offers us lasting comfort through Jesus Christ. That's the big truth of this passage. God offers us lasting comfort in Jesus. And in this passage, there are just two comforts, that lasting comforts that God gives us in Jesus that I just want to mention briefly this morning. The first thing we see in, this, in these two verses is that God offers us the lasting comfort of belonging. God offers us the lasting comfort of belonging. That's the first point. Now, we can learn a lot about what our society thinks of itself, where the society is looking for comfort by the buzzwords we use every day, right? Words like vulnerability, presence, influencer, belong, right? These are the buzzwords of our time. That final word, belong, is particularly popular today. It is a sales pitch of many clubs. It's a sales pitch of many internet groups that you come across. We see it in adverts. You belong here. That's what everybody's selling, right? You can truly belong here. Why has belonging become such a popular idea in our culture? I think it's because many of us have lost or have never had a true sense of belonging. You see, for all our advances in technology and instant communications, we are the most lonely generation in human history. Many of us are longing to belong. We are searching for belonging. We live in a generation that our experts call the swipe right culture. I don't know if you've ever come across that. It's a swipe right culture. It is a culture of easy dating, easy relationships, and lead to commitment. When we like something at a glance, we swipe right, right? The moment that thing or that person or that job or that church loses its appeal, we swipe left, usually with our phone, right? Our swipe right culture promises freedom and comfort, but it never delivers. It never delivers. It always keeps us searching for something better. And so we find ourselves asking, where do I belong? What is my identity? Who are my people? And so it leaves us with this longing for belonging. 
Uh, it's this primary need in all of us. It's a, it's a need that's greater than food. It's a need that's greater than the need for shelter. You cannot flourish in life without a true sense of belonging. And we don't just want to belong anywhere. We want to belong somewhere wonderful. Because Groucho Marx once said, I would never join any club that would accept me as a member. That's what he said. I would never join any club that would accept me as a member. We were looking puzzled. We said, why would he say that? Was he looking down on himself? Well, no. What he meant is that we long to belong to something larger, something better than ourselves. In other words, you see, even though we may not admit it, what we long for is really to be hugged by God. He's the only one who's larger and better to truly comfort us. And that's why the African church father, Augustine of Hippo, said, we are made to belong to God, isn't it? To paraphrase him. And our hearts are restless until they find rest in God. You see, if the greatest poverty in life is being wanted, or being unwanted, right? If the greatest poverty in life is being unwanted, then the greatest riches in life is what? It's being wanted by the God who created us. To truly belong to him. And the great news of Isaiah 40, verse 1 to 2, is that this great God is offering us what we yearn for. In these verses, he's offering us the comfort of true belonging. Look at verse 1 again. Comfort. Comfort, my people, says your God. I want to suggest to you that the key word in that verse is my people. The phrase, my people. As you read that slowly, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. It is very possessive, isn't it? God is saying to Isaiah, tell Israel, she has... She already has a home. Tell her she is completely mine. We need to pause on that. Because this is very shocking. Verse 1 is very shocking. Because remember what's in verse 30, what is in chapter 39. In chapter 39, towards the end of 39, is Isaiah speaking to King Hezekiah, pronouncing judgment that they will be taken into exile because of their sin. And now, almost in the same breath, and this is why we, sh- we should recognize that Isaiah is really one book, right? It's one book. Yes, it's divided in sort of chapter 1 to 39 and 40 to 66, like the Bible, right? <laughs> it's got an Old and New Testament to it, right? But it's really one book. Because in the same breath of pronouncing judgment, God is saying, comfort them. It reveals something about the heart of God, doesn't it? Comfort them for me. He tells Isaiah. I want them to know that I've not bailed out on them. I want them to know they are not going in exile because I hate them. No. They are going into exile actually because they are my people. I am sending them there to discipline them. I know they have slapped me in the face with sin. I know they have been chasing false gods. But I'm still holding them close to my chest. My heart still beats love for them. I am still their tender father who holds them in eternal embrace. They are my people. Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. What a God of grace. What a God of grace. 
And it is shocking, isn't it, when we hear those words, not only because of who God is talking to, but who He's speaking. It shocks us when we think about just how great this God is. When we keep on reading Isaiah 40, right, we realize just how big this God is. We, we use the name God so many times, we don't really pause to think who we are talking about. But God here wants them to know who He is. Who it is that is saying, you are my people. Because we read on. We're not going to read all of Isaiah 40. Our brother Victor read a part of it. But chapter verse 25 to verse 28 there. Listen to what God says about himself. Isaiah 40, 25 to 28. He says, to whom then will you compare me? That I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he's strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God. The creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Just in that small section, God has declared that he's omnipotent. There's no limit to his power. He has declared that he's omnipresent. omnipresent. There's nowhere where, which is far from him. He is the, the creator of the ends of the earth. He's everywhere. And he's also declared that he's omniscient. Your way is not hidden from him. He saw your unformed substance. And so this is the God, the omnipresent, the omnipotent, the omniscient God who is crying out, if we might say, in verse 1 and 2. Speak, verse 2, speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry out to our, cry out to our what? Verse 1, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. This is the God who's speaking. And I think when we read verse 1, we have to keep that in mind. We can't read verse 1 without verse 9 to 31. We need to remember this is a holy God. The holy one of Israel. And here he's saying, I know my sense of justice. I know my sense of holiness. And I know my justice and my holiness demands that I banish you away from my presence. But I am committed to you. You are my people. And immediately it forces us to ask the question, isn't it? How can God, this great God, still call Israel my people? When they have rebelled against him? Well, the answer is in verse 2, isn't it? It's in verse 2. Look at verse 2. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her. Cry to her what? That our warfare is ended. Why? That our iniquity is Pardoned. Iniquity is just not a word for sin, but really it's, 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 it's a deviant, twisted nature of sin. That's why iniquity communicates. And God is saying that iniquity, that deviant moral bent, has been forgiven, has been pardoned. Actually, that's the correct word. It's not forgiven. It's pardoned. What does it mean, pardoned? Well, pardoned literally means paid off. The original word, paid off. 
God is saying to Israel, your sin is like a credit card bill that has now been completely paid off. How has it been paid off? It's not by Israel. If we've learned anything through Mark, is we've been reminding ourselves that our sin inflict before God an eternal penalty. God is an infinite being. Israel can never serve enough to earn God's favor. They can never be punished enough for their sin to be accepted before God. Their sin, like my sin, your sin, deserves an eternal penalty. No, God has paid it off. How has he paid it off? Well, the answer is in Isaiah 53. It's one book, remember. It's in Isaiah 53, where we read this in Isaiah 53, verse 6. And we, that is Israel, really speaking, all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him. And Isaiah maintains the consistency. He says, only him, what? He could have said sin. But he says, the iniquity, singular like a blob, the iniquity of us all. In other words, the good news of Isaiah is that we can have lasting comfort in God and God can forgive Israel of their sin. Those who repent and come back to him Why? Because of the future sacrifice of the death of Jesus. In fact, any mercies that God is showing Israel, not just saving mercies, is on account of the grace that is found in their atonement. God has forgiven them because, you see, he plans to pay off that infinite debt of their sin on Golgotha, 800 years from the time Isaiah is speaking, on the cross, and he did. The good news of Isaiah, not just for Israel then, but for us, is that Jesus is God, the Son, dying on the cross to bring us to God. He died to give us lasting comfort of belonging to God. And if you truly repent of your sin, if you truly surrender your life to God based on the death of Jesus on the cross for your sin, this very moment, you will belong to God. That's the gospel of Isaiah. That's the gospel of the Bible. And if you're already trusting in Jesus, you already belong to God. If you're truly trusting in the death of Jesus, God has paid off your sin in Christ. God has pardoned your sin, past, present, and future. You are part of the people of God. The words of this one are for you. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Let me ask you this morning. Have you received this comfort of belonging to Jesus? Have you truly surrendered to Jesus as your Lord and Savior? I am not asking whether you call yourself a Christian. In church, I hardly meet anyone, only once or twice, that somebody has never told me they are not a Christian. That's not what I'm asking. I'm asking, do you deep down believe and confess that Jesus is my only comfort in life and in death, as the Hildebeck Catechism asks. Can you say that I belong to Jesus, body and soul? Not just saying, 
right? Not just words. Does your life give evidence that you are placing your comfort in Jesus? Talk is cheap, right? It's about, has your life been transformed? Has it been changed? Does it show evidence that you have your comfort in Jesus? Does it show that your true sense of belonging is in the Son? Or does it show that you're actually searching for comfort in family, comfort in careers, comfort in money, comfort in friendships, comfort in Captain Tom and others, comfort in yourself? You see, the pandemic has revealed the hearts of many people that I know. People that I long thought they were holding their comfort in Jesus have been found to be holding their comfort in their hands, trying to extend their life by the way they live. They have their comfort only in this present world, and they live now in fear. And of course, there are others that perhaps, that I may have wrongly thought their comfort was in this world, but God has shown such evidence in their lives that they are looking to Christ. They are yearning to go to Christ. What about you this morning? Where is your comfort in life? You ask, how can I know that my comfort really is in Jesus or it is in the things of this world? Well, it's very simple, isn't it? When your comfort in this wo- is in this world, you live to fit Jesus around the things of this world. It's that simple. There's the world, there is Jesus. When your comfort is in this world, you live to fit Jesus, you take Jesus, and try to fit him into your life. If your comfort is in Jesus, you fit the world with Jesus. You bring things of the world into submission to Christ. Your life fits around Jesus. Not Jesus fitting around you. You see, if you are always trying to fit Jesus into your life, then it's not truly your lasting comfort. Listen, it does not matter what comes out of your mouth. It doesn't matter. The question is, what is the evidence of your life? And if you're trying to fit Jesus into your life, then you you don't have his heart. And Jesus does not have your heart. Your comfort is in worldly things. And the truth of the matter is, you're not yet converted. Jesus is simply an add-on. And today God has a wonderful word, tender words of comfort to you, to draw you to himself. He's saying, I am offering you the comfort of belonging in Jesus. I want verse 1 to be for you. I want to be able to say to you, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Surrender your life to me, God says. Let me be your comfort. Accept this very moment that if you are to die today, You have no comfort in death. Not because I say it, but because your life says it. Because your life shows you don't have the heart of Christ. Accept that at this very moment, there is no comfort for you in heaven. You wouldn't go to heaven. Why? Because heaven would be a terror to you. Because your heart has not been changed. 
And so God is saying, repent of your sin. Come to Jesus. Because there is no other lasting comfort. And to reject the comfort of Jesus, well, it is to choose the discomfort of hell. It's that simple. So the first comfort that God gives us here is that God is offering us the comfort of true belonging. And just quickly, the second comfort that God gives us here in Isaiah is that God offers us the comfort of lasting blessing. The comfort of lasting blessing. You know, in the film Transcendence, Johnny Depp plays a scientist who decides to upload his human consciousness on the internet, science fiction film. And if you've seen that movie, in the process, it becomes omnipotent, doesn't it, Johnny Depp? But sadly, for all his new superpowers, well, what happens is that they turn him into an evil maniac. And so the film, I'm sure it was written by an atheist, the film is making a very simple point. It is saying, a God who is absolutely powerful can never be good for us. That's the message of the film. A God who is absolutely powerful can never be good for us. And of course we disagree with that, don't we? Because the Bible disagrees with that. The God of Isaiah is not like the made-up idol of Johnny Depp. Our God is a holy God. And He's a good God. And He uses His power not to oppress us, but to bless His people in Christ. That's why he says there in verse 1, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her. Cry to her what? That our warfare is ended. That our warfare is ended. You know, the word for warfare there means hardship or hard service or severe trials. You see, Isaiah is speaking in the 8th century and he's looking forward to the 6th century. He's saying, God will end Israel's 70-year captivity in Babylon. Their time of warfare, their time of distress will stop. God will bring them back into their land. And of course, we know history. We know that exactly after 70 years, as Jeremiah prophesied, this prophecy was fulfilled, wasn't it? After 70 years of captivity, God's people returned from Babylon. After Cyrus issued a decree, just as the word of God had foretold. So this blessing of a physical return was fulfilled. But this prophecy is more than just the comfort of the blessing of a physical return from exile. It is a promise of a lasting spiritual blessing. Let's read on verse 2. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that our warfare is ended. That our iniquity is pardoned. That she has received from the Lord's hand double for all our sins. You know, the last phrase, double for all our sins, has generated a lot of debate among those who are paid to study the Bible, right? It is a bit difficult to understand. What does Isaiah mean she has received from the Lord's hand double for all our sins? Some people would tell us that the word double here means Judah, the southern kingdom of Judah, has received enough or an exact punishment from God for their sins. That was Calvin's view. That is Alec Motier's view. So they would say, God says, in effect, you have paid up 
we might say. And that immediately kind of makes us sit up a little bit and say, hmm, that's interesting. That's possible if we're thinking of paying up in Christ, of course. But I think a better reading of this verse, the natural reading of this verse, in the context, not just of the immediate context, but of Isaiah as a whole and the Old Testament as a whole, is that the word double here really should be understood to refer to blessing. That's, what, that's how Isaiah uses it in Isaiah 61 verse 7. In Isaiah 61 verse 7 he says this, Instead of your shame, there will be a double portion. Instead of your dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess what? A double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. That's how the prophet Zechariah used it in Zechariah 9 verse 12. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you what? Double. Double. So God here, who has spoken double, comfort, comfort, that's double, ends with that word, isn't it? She has received from the Lord's hand double comfort, double blessing for all our sins. God has not just given, has, just, has not just forgiven them. Our iniquity is pardoned, we know that. But he's going further. He's saying, I am grace upon grace, isn't it? As John speaks of it. On, in him, in Jesus, we have received grace upon grace. Double grace, we might say. And it's not so much the concept of double. It is a concept here that they have received blessings from God which never runs out. They will have spiritual blessings in the Messiah, Jesus, in 800 years' time or 600 years' time, if you're counting from the time of the exile, which will never run out. Isaiah was looking forward in a time when Jesus would come as a lion of Judah, who through his death will bring us that lasting spiritual blessing. And the Apostle Paul, writing to the church at Ephesus, says God has given not just the people in the Old Testament who trusted in, who looked forward to Jesus, all who trust in Jesus now, he has given them every spiritual blessing. Isn't that what we read in Isaiah, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 to 10? There are words worth reading, even though we know them by heart, some of us. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoptions of sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Blessing upon blessing. And then Paul goes on to say, in him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses, according to what the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. He lavished upon us. In all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which is set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And in chapter 2, Paul goes on to make, to make the point in chapter 2, verse 4 to 6, that we are now sat with Christ in the heavenly places. Paul is saying if we are trusting in Jesus as our Lord and Savior, all the blessings that belong to Jesus 
now belong to us. Now, this does not mean that you never experience distress. Even our Lord Jesus wept. Even our Lord Jesus suffered. And Peter tells us that because Jesus suffered, we too are called to suffer. So what this passage is teaching us here in Isaiah is that we have lasting comfort, not necessarily the absence of pain, but rather our lasting comfort is really we have all the spiritual blessings in Christ. We lack nothing in Christ. We are completely provided for now and in the world to come. Look, we know that while we're in this world, we belong to Jesus, don't we? He's our provider. He's caring for every need. And we know that we have more blessings to come, don't we? You see, the message of this world is that if you want comfort, do it yourself. It is about self-made comfort. Pull yourself by your bootstrap. Find as Boris Johnson was saying, you know, find the hero inside you. That's the message. Find your own Captain Tom. Right? That's the message of our society. But the Bible is telling us, no, 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 no. Man-made comfort is a pipe dream. It cannot give us lasting comfort. It can never give us true belonging. It can never give us lasting blessings. True comfort only comes from God. And if you're trusting in Jesus this morning... As your Lord and Savior, you have all you need in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know what situation you find yourself here this morning as a follower of Jesus. Maybe you find yourself in an extremely difficult time of your life. You are going through difficult suffering. And when we are going through difficult suffering, it is difficult for us to hear this message, isn't it? It's difficult for us to hear this message and actually take it to heart. We can hear intellectually, yeah, God gives us lasting comfort in Jesus. We have true belonging. But it never reaches us because the suffering almost like is pushing that truth back. It is hard to believe you have all the comfort of lasting blessings in Christ when your loved one is struggling with poor health. It's hard to believe that. Or even emotional health. It is hard to believe you have the comfort of lasting blessing in Jesus when God appears not to be answering your prayer perhaps for a life partner. Someone to marry. It's hard. You can hear it on Sunday but it just pushes back. It is hard to believe you have all the comfort you need in Jesus when you're struggling to repair a broken relationship that has left you just... I really want this to be mended. And God knows that, doesn't he? He knows it is hard for us. God knows suffering is difficult for us. That's why I think it speaks double here. Comfort, not just once. Comfort. He doesn't want us to miss it. God knows that we struggle to receive his comfort. And I think that is why he has put this old passage in the Bible. I think this is why he's letting us hear this truth this morning. He's giving you the opportunity to hear this word of God. God is inviting you this morning to bring your distress, your hard service, whatever it is. 
your trial. He knows all about it and he's inviting you to bring it to him. He's saying, receive this word of comfort. He wants you to hear his voice of comfort in this passage. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her. Our warfare is ended and our iniquity is pardoned. That she has received from the Lord's hand double for all our sin. I want you to listen carefully to those words. Listen to the tender voice of God in that passage. Listen to how committed he is towards you. Did you listen that actually this message isn't so much for you as it is for the preacher? Actually, because in this message, God is speaking through the preacher. He's encouraging the preacher to speak these words of comfort to you. Listen to those words how he commands the preachers for your benefit. He's saying to me as a preacher, comfort her with my comfort in her time of suffering. Tell her that once she was not part of the people of God, but now she is part of my people. Let her know that she belongs to me forever. God is saying, cry to him in this difficult time of affliction. To you. He's saying, cry to him. In, he's saying to me to cry to you, right? Maybe if I'm preaching this properly, I should have been doing it with tears, right? He says, cry to him in this difficult time of affliction. Tell him that he has already received double for all his sins. That he has lasting spiritual blessings in Jesus. Let him know that one day his warfare will end. Let him know that God only has tender words for him. Even as he struggles with family life, even as he struggles perhaps with, with, with issues at work, even as he struggles with many things, let him know that I am holding him close to my chest. Beloved, if you are trusting in Jesus, the heart of the Father beats Comfort for you. He's saying, if you remember anything from this message, he's saying, be comforted. Be comforted. Now, we could have said that from the beginning, isn't it? And just ended it there. But that's the message. <laughs> it takes 45 minutes to get there. Be comforted. You have all you need in Jesus. Amen.